Dan. Forty five at the what what is it? Eight forty five and what? Ten forty five? No, it, no, it's eight thirty, eight thirty and ten forty five. Yeah. I left my message. He left his message inside there. Second on. Bring it back. Wait a minute. Gave all you're supposed to give them. So eight thirty tomorrow morning he'll be speaking at IHOP and ten forty five. Good. Got a lot to cover. Now, most of you know that, that uh, Dan is the leader of Tikkun. Everyone say Tikkun. Tikkun. It means restoration in Hebrew. So, I've heard a few say, you know that ministry they're a part of. Just say it again, Tikkun. It's not a big deal. It's easy to say, Tikkun. It's, it's like, like a tea bag and a raccoon. Just Tikkun. You got it. Okay? It means restoration. So, I just want the... Uh, the mystique of that word to go away. It's a very easy word to say. I'm going to pray for... Uh, for I've got so much here, Mike. I've got so much material. I don't know what to do. No, no. You can have it back. You can have it back. Dan is one of the more brilliant teachers. Who is this guy you bring with you? Who is this guy? Emma, who is this guy you bring with you? Father, we thank you for the word of the Lord. We thank you for 30 years. 30 years that a number of them have been faithful. And the 25 years, many of them have walked together in covenant relationship. And Lord, we are in need of receiving from your heart, from the depth of the wells of the root system of the tree of Abraham. So, Lord, we ask that the root would support the branch tonight. And we would receive from the tree of Abraham. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Amen. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mike Bickle. It was 14 years ago that we came here to Kansas City. And we thought something wonderful was going to be established for Israel. And you know what? It probably was. But you couldn't tell at all after that visit. We had a conference, that is, about a year later. And after that exciting conference, nothing happened in the visible world. But now something is about to happen in the visible world. And perhaps something was established in the invisible world. Well, I have a standard message about the last days that I give to people when I travel. If they haven't heard it before, I want them to hear it. And I tell everybody that what I'm going to share is a summary of what's in the book, Israel, the Church in the Last Days. And uh, it's a good message. Usually people are excited about it. And usually it sells a lot of books, Israel, the Church in the Last Days. It's a very important book. You all should read it. Everybody should read it. Jack Hayford's read it. Mike Bickle's read it. Many of you haven't read it, I can tell. But I love my wife, and she travels with me. And as I travel to the different congregations, every year I have a message for all the congregations in our network, and I usually preach the same message. So she has to listen to that message about 15, 20 times. And then the message on the last days, she's probably heard about 70 or 80 times. 
So today, as I was preparing more, the spirit of compassion came on me for my wife. And I said, God, I just can't give the same message with Patty sitting there, even though she intercedes. It, it's a stumbling block to her intercession. But actually, I had this sense that I wanted to do something that was a bit more challenging tonight, a bit more grand and a bit more challenging because I haven't preached this message before just like this. It has some of the themes about the last days. But I'm going to need you to exercise faith because we're going to try to hit a higher note than even that usual message, which hits a decently high note uh, from the Lord. But this is a message that should excite and motivate you. I call this message eternal destiny. Do you all know that you have an everlasting eternal destiny? Now, it's connected to Israel. You'll see it's connected to the themes of the conference. So, Mike, don't worry. We are going to talk about Israel. But it is eternal destiny. And I have a theme statement for you. If you take notes, you can write this down. Motivate yourself by comprehending your eternal destiny. Motivate yourself by comprehending your eternal destiny in an order of mutual blessing. Your eternal destiny is in an order of mutual blessing. So motivate yourself by comprehending your eternal destiny in an order of mutual blessing and give yourselves to move history to that destiny. Give yourselves to move history to that destiny. We read of Abraham in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10, that he looked for another city, not a city on this earth, that he looked for another city. And looking for that other city is what sustained him as he was a pilgrim in this life. And we have to be pilgrims in this life because the things that are going to come upon this earth are not pretty. We're living for an eternal destiny, an eternal city. And it's important to understand that the things of this world, of this age, can be destroyed. Just the other day, you've probably heard on the news, there was a terrible terrorist bombing in Spain. And by the way, I think a lot of this terrorism is for the sake of turning the world against Israel because people will say the cost is too much for allowing Israel to exist, we should sacrifice that nation for the sake of peace with the Islamic world. That is going to be a great test of the Western world. But that's not my point tonight. My point is that so much of this life has a dimension of tragedy and destruction in it. And if you live long enough on this world, you will experience some tremendous betrayals some tremendous tragedies, and you cannot make this world the ultimate place of your fulfillment. Abraham lived envisioning an eternal city. So I want us, first of all, to understand our destiny, and I want us to turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, which we call Bereshit. And these are the creation accounts. When I was in college early seminary, I thought nobody could know anything about the last days or the doctrine of eschatology, whether we were going to go up pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, pre-mill, ah-mill, 
pan-millennial. I did not think anybody could figure it out. And the only reason people thought they could figure it out was they were insufficiently educated. But I came to understand later that the whole New Testament was largely devoted to the theme of the last days and eschatology and the age to come. And I've come now to understand that the whole Bible is of that nature. Today, Jewish thinkers are telling us that the book of Genesis is itself a book about the last days. That's hard to begin. I thought it was a book about the beginnings. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. That doesn't sound like the last days. The earth was formless and empty and darkness over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. So we read about the separation of light and darkness and evening and morning the first day. And then God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate the uh, water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water uh, above and the water under. And God called the expanse sky in evening and morning. And then God set the water of the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. So God ex- separated dry ground and water. And then God said, let the land produce vegetation, bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to various kinds. And the land produced vegetation and plants, bearing seed according to their kind, and trees bearing fruit, seed according to their kinds. And evening and morning the third day, and then the next day, let there be lights. And we read about the creation of the sun and the moon, or at least setting them in the right order in relationship to the earth. And then we read about living creatures teeming in the waters, all kinds of creatures in the sea, and then all kinds of birds that fly in the air, great creatures of the sea, even sea monsters we would call them, as we read later on in the Scripture. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them and He said to all the creatures He created, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And there was evening and morning, the fifth day. And then God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kind. Livestock, creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals, each according to their kind. And it was so. And God made the wild animals according to their kinds the livestock according to their kind, and all the creatures that move on the ground according to their kind. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over the livestock and over all the earth and over all the creatures. So man created in the image of God is called to rule wisely in God's stead. Man is the vice regent over the earth. God delegates to human beings authority over this earth in the representation of God. And when we talk about the image of God, it's not man's mental capacity. It's not man's emotional capacity. It's not man's moral capacity. It is the whole man who is in the image of God in all of his capacities ruling wisely as God's vice regent. That's the image of God. Then God takes man into a beautiful garden. We read, the Lord God planted a garden in the east. So God himself is a gardener, Patty. And you know what it's like to have a ruined garden. We just had our garden ruined by putting in a septic system. So God also planted a garden, and his garden was a bit ruined. He put the man he had formed into the garden... 
The Lord God made all kinds of trees that grew out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It talks about the river watering this beautiful garden. So man is put into this extraordinarily beautiful place we call Gan Eden, the Garden of Eden. And then we read that the Lord God says, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a suitable help me for him. The Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and the birds of the air, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called them, each living creature, that was its name. So man names all of the animals that are in proximity, at least, to the garden, all that he can name. So he was the first one to classify animals. And by giving them names, he was discerning their nature and determining their nature. He was discerning the nature of the animals and... He was determining their nature. And then the Lord God made, but for Adam, excuse me, Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs. That's why we're all missing a rib, man. Is that true or is that a myth? And he closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. And the man said, Wow! This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And what you really get, and I have this experience. I hope you men have had this experience if you're married. This is great! I really like this! Woo! I think that's what Adam was saying. He got very excited when he saw Eve. And uh, I still get excited whenever I see my beloved. It's a wonderful part of life. And we learn something about God's intention for human beings. We learn something about our eschatological destiny by reading the book of Genesis because we see that God has created an order of vast variety that is intertwined and interdependent for mutual blessing. The word blessing oftentimes doesn't compute to modern ears. The word blessing means enrichment. He has created a vast order of extraordinary complexity and variety that is intertwined for mutual enrichment, all that is to be ruled and overseen by human beings. So that man blesses nature... And nature blesses man, so that man blesses woman, and woman blesses man. Distinction enables blessing. Without distinctions in creation, there is no blessing. Without distinction between men and women, there is no blessing. And much of the liberation movements today is to destroy distinction between men and women. But the blessing comes in seeing that the other completes us, fulfills something in us. So man is meant to bless nature. Nature is meant to bless man. So the environmentalists are right about that. But we shouldn't worship nature. Nature is under God's 
sovereignty, and it's supposed to be under our stewardship. But also, God blesses nature, and nature blesses God. God blesses man, and man blesses God. Man enriches God. We don't understand it. How could it be that God is enriched by us, but He is? But we know that we need to be enriched by Him. And the whole thing is tied into this extraordinary relationship that is so complex, that is so vast, that is so beautiful, that if you begin to try to plumb the depths of it, you can never come to the end of it because it's infinite. And that's why in the eternal ages there will never, ever be boredom. You see, the picture that we have in Genesis is a foreshadowing of the picture of the everlasting age in which we will dwell, in which we will live forever. It's a foreshadowing. It's an eschatological picture. Man loses this through the fall. And we're not going to go into the issue of the fall tonight other than to mention it briefly. But this whole picture that you find in the book of Genesis anticipates and looks to Revelation chapter 21. And that's why many people understand that Revelation chapter 21, which talks about the New Jerusalem and the nations coming into it, but then it speaks about there being a garden and the trees planted by the river and the trees that give life to the nation and the leaves that are for the healing of the nations. It's obvious that the picture in Revelation chapter 21 is based on and parallel to the picture in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. The difference is that, in using Milton's words, Paradise restored is better than paradise originally was. So our destiny is in paradise restored. Our destiny is in a glorious order of mutual blessing, of human fellowship, of male and female, of a great variety of plants and animals, of a great variety of all kinds of natural things. It's at a level that we can't comprehend now, but it's more than everything wonderful we know about this earth. It's not about being on the cloud with a harp playing for the next 10 million years just playing a harp on a cloud. No wonder our young people are not that attracted to the pictures that we give them sometimes. So God creates man for this kind of mutual fellowship and mutual blessing, but self-centeredness destroys it, and it's lost in sin. In Genesis chapter 10, we read about the story of the nations coming into being, all of whom are descended from Noah. We're skipping the issue of the flood. And then we read about the Tower of Babel. The whole world had one language and had a common speech. Men moved eastward and they found a plain in Shinar and they settled there and they said, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. And they said, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to heaven so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the earth. But the Lord God came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. And the Lord said, if one people speaking the same language, they begin to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible. Let us go down and confuse their language that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them over the whole earth and they stopped building the city. Many people misunderstand what is going on here in the Tower of Babel story. Human beings in their rebellion against God 
were refusing to fulfill the command that was originally given to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. They said, we're not going to fill the earth. We're going to stay together in one place. We're not going to spread out over the earth and see different kinds of peoples develop. So God comes down and changes their languages supernaturally. The languages probably would have developed anyway over time. But he changes their languages supernaturally and forces them into the scattering that he had commanded them to do back in the Genesis account. God creates here a variety of nations. And we need to not read the Tower story as only a judgment, but we need to read the Tower of Babel story also as a blessing from God as He forces human beings to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then we have a variety of nations. Now, many people in the church think that the ideal of God is to do away with nations. They think that the existence of nations is part of the judgment of God and that in the eternal ages there will be no nations, there will only be human beings. But that is not true teaching. Because when we come to Revelation chapter 21 again, we read that all of the nations come to the new Jerusalem and they bring their enrichment their gifts into it, and it's not just about money, it's about that each nation has an enriching contribution. It's something we cannot quite perceive. But what happens is that each nation develops a unique corporate personality, a unique way of being. All of us who are part of a nation participate in the personality of the nation that we're a part, or the ethnos. We're not aware of it because it's so natural to us. We're like a fish in water. A fish never thinks, you know, I think I'm swimming in water. Because the culture that we're a part of is like living in water to us, like a fish. But God sees it, and to God... The variety of ethnicities is an enriching variety, just like the enrichment that God makes by creating a vast variety of different kinds of animals and plants. God wants there to be a vast varieties of people, a vast variety of corporate personalities that we call ethnicities. And out of that vast variety of ethnicities, individual personalities also differ. God is into creating astonishing variety. But human beings are into being threatened by difference, and so we seek to homogenize everything and make everybody else like ourselves. But that would be boring to God. Asher said the other night that God's idea, that Yeshua's idea of a good time, is to be king of Jerusalem. And although we can't understand that, let's give him what he wants. But Yeshua's idea of a good time, God's idea of a good time, is to have a vast variety of different kinds of ethnicities that he can enjoy. He enjoys the ethnicity of the Japanese. Do you understand this? He loves their little miniature kind of art and their shrinking little trees into little tiny things. (laughs) 
I think if they would do it the right way and not do it in the wrong spirit and legalism, that God likes people dressing up in black and bobbing back and forth in front of the Western Wall. Looks crazy, but I think God enjoys it. It's kind of different. And I think God enjoys it when the Episcopalians come and they sing in their own unique way and they say, the Lord be with you, as they used to say, and the Lord be with your spirit. And they sing the liturgy, O thou Christ that taketh away the sins of the world, have mercy upon us. And I think he enjoys the people that break out the rock drums in spite of Bill Gothard and have a great rock celebration of Jesus. God seems to be the kind of a guy that simply cannot rest without creating more variety, more creativity, more kinds of people, more kinds of things, and we're supposed to be mutually blessed by it. I like the song Amazing Grace, but it's not the same song in the black church. Is it? God likes that. And so he creates these tremendous varieties that threaten us, but that he enjoys as long as it's within the context of not being sinful. But because man is sinful, he becomes a tool of the devil, and the devil desires to level everything. He desires to destroy the earth, destroy ethnic variety, destroy different kinds of people, destroy marriage. The devil is into destroying the mutually enriching distinctions between things. God creates variety of nations so that we will have all eternity to plumb the depths of that variety. But man seeks to destroy it. And when the French are upset over McDonald's restaurants, it isn't totally without some truth. In Genesis chapter 12, we read, The Lord said to Abraham, Leave your country and your people and your father's household to go into a land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on the earth will be blessed by you. Isaiah says that in the end of times, Israel will blossom and, bear f and bud and will fill the whole world with fruit. We read of Israel that she will fill the whole world with fruit, but the nations will also bring their blessing of enrichment to Israel. The relationship between Israel and the nations is a relationship of mutual blessing that begins with Abraham. And you see, we sometimes get a little bit stuck up if we're not Jewish. I'm speaking about my Norwegian side. I have a Jewish side and a Norwegian side, so this is the Norwegian side speaking. Yeah, those Jews, I mean, why should they be chosen to be so important? Here's the Jewish side. Well, because we said yes to the invitation of God. You see, there is a story in the rabbinic literature that God went to all of the nations of the world and offered them his covenant, and they all said no except for the Jewish people. And we laugh at that story. But, you know, it may be truer than we think. 
You see, God did not choose Israel because he was arbitrary, like in Calvinism, or a respecter of persons. God chose Israel because of the relationship he was able to establish with Abraham. And anyone who walks with God, as Abraham walks with God, has established a line of blessing in his descendants that's parallel but not exact. So we read in regards to the choice of Abraham that his forefather was Shem. And Shem was blessed for some reason in his character that we don't quite know why. We know that he was different than Ham, and we know that Ham cannot be blessed when you're Jewish. All right. Now, no, we really love the Hamites. Now, one of the descendants of Shem was Terah. And we read that Terah was already on his way to the promised land, but he stopped. He didn't continue the journey. And what we oftentimes forget is that Abraham was continuing a journey in Genesis chapter 12 that his father had already begun. And we forget that it is probable that the preservation of the knowledge of God that was being lost from the earth was most preserved in Abraham and his relatives. And that's why the patriarchs wanted their sons to go back to their relatives to get wise. Even though they were compromised, they were more the preservers of truth than anybody else in the earth. So God chooses a people who less abandoned Him. He chooses a people that can hear His voice and say yes. And in the case of Abraham, he developed such a level of relationship with God that he could even hear His voice to the point of sacrificing His own Son. When it made no sense, He contradicted the actions of Adam and Eve who said, we'd rather figure it out for ourselves, we'd rather understand good and evil through experience than to obey God. But Abraham said, I would rather obey God. And if God said, sacrifice your son, even if it didn't make sense in regards to the covenant promise, he went and did it because he had that kind of relationship with God. You want to know why Jewish people are chosen? Study the life of Abraham and ask yourself if anybody else in the ancient world measures up to it. The merit of Abraham was so great that in spite of all our stubbornness and sin, we can't shake the chosenness of God upon our people. We can do all sorts of things to suffer in that chosenness, but we can't shake the ultimate destiny because of God's choice of Abraham. Israel is chosen as a nation for God to love but also to bring blessing to all the nations of the world. And as one scholar, R. Kendall Solon, says that the relationship between Israel and the nations, that God loves Israel and that Israel is chosen to bless the nations and that there is a distinction between Israel and the nations is an everlasting distinction that opens up the distinction of seeing that God loves the variety of all the ethnicities. Because Israel and the nations are distinct, so can the Japanese and the Koreans and the Chinese and the Germans and the Norwegians. All of them are blessed and ethnicities become legitimized because there is a distinction between Israel and the nations. God loves that ethnic variety. And therefore, Israel is chosen to bring the nations back to God 
by being a nation in the midst of the nations that shows what it's like to live under the kingdom of God. But Israel fails. They fall into idolatry. And yet the prophets assure us that the destiny of Israel and the nations will yet be fulfilled. That there is coming an order. There is coming a new era. There is coming a city whose maker is God, where nature and nations and God will be in right order. There is coming an era where nature, nations, and God will be in right order and will be in mutual blessing and mutual fellowship and mutual appreciation where the whole world will become like the Garden of Eden. We read about it in Isaiah chapter 2. The prophets were very unusual men because in the midst of the most terrifying disappointments, they were able to see through the veil to a glorious hope. These passages were not written in times of prosperity, and ease. But they were written in the times of the greatest human disappointment. And so we read in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2, In the last days the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways so that we may walk in His paths. The law will go out from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So the order of God among the nations reestablishes Israel and Jerusalem as central. He will judge between the nations and settle disputes for many peoples. And they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. In Isaiah chapter 11, we read a further description that after one who becomes known as the Messiah brings judgment and the sword goes forth from his mouth to slay the wicked, we read of this one called the branch who brings God's salvation and brings God's judgment that after he does so, in verse 6, the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, and the young lo will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox, the infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and the young child would put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the glory of God as the waters cover the seas. One time I was in a restaurant, and I was talking to an animal rights activist. Now, I didn't tell her what I really think, because I'm an animal rights activist, and I believe that every animal has a right to fulfill its destiny. And sometime that destiny is medium grilled on my plate. But if I'm witnessing, I'm going to be a little more intelligent than that. And I said, do you know that the Bible is the strongest book in the world for animal rights? She said, no, I didn't know that. And I said, yeah, because you understand that even if you get human beings to not wear leather and to not eat meat, that animals kill animals. It's devastating. They do it to each other all the time. 
she was kind of shocked and depressed when I said that. She said, oh, I know it. And I said, but do you know that the Bible says that there is coming an order where the animals will be at peace with each other? You see, this is a return to the circumstances of the Garden of Eden, where the animal creation is changed. The Bible leads us to believe that as we come to the end of this age and the return of Jesus, it is not the destruction of the earth, it's not the destruction of the nations, but it's the total transformation of this earth, both the nations and the animals and the plants and everything in this world will be transformed. And that at the end of this age, when Jesus returns, there will be the mass conversion of all nations into the kingdom of God. Is your end times view that optimistic? Mine is, because that's what the Bible says. Listen to what God says in Isaiah chapter 45. Verse 22. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn my mouth is uttered in all integrity, a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow. By me every tongue will swear. This is positive swearing. This is a positive promise. What will people say when they swear? They will say of me, in the Lord alone are righteousness and strength. All who have raged against him will come to him and be put to shame. But in the Lord... but. But in the Lord, all the descendants of Israel will be found righteous and exalt. The Bible says again and again and again that Israel and the nations will ultimately turn to God. That Israel and the nations ultimately will be redeemed. That Israel and the nations will enter into an order of the age to come where everything will be transformed and the whole world will be like the Garden of Eden. We read of these things in Joel chapter 3, Amos chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 65, Isaiah chapter 66. Passage after passage after passage pours out an optimism that what we say anticipated in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 will become worldwide fulfillment after redemption is accomplished in the age to come. That is our eternal destiny. We are living for a city. We are living for a world of everlasting fulfillment that is the best of everything that we know in this life raised to the tenth power or more. So that no matter what happens in this life, if we can glimpse the eternal and believe it, we will have the confidence to go through this world no matter what. Because we are victorious on the other side. But it's not just that we go to heaven when we die, but we're moving history to the destiny of the world. And I want to say two things here. That we move history to that destiny, which I just described, by restoring the church and through the gospel of the kingdom. So this is the second point. The first point is just understanding our destiny. But second and third points have to do with how do we get to that destiny? We have to move history to that destiny by restoring the church and the gospel of the kingdom. I'm going to have to do this quickly because I don't want you to be here all night. I'm telling you I've got enough material that I could have you here all night. It wouldn't be difficult. But these themes are so grand and so encouraging 
that they're worth it. Matthew chapter 24, please turn with me. Matthew chapter 24. If we're going to move history toward this destiny, the destiny of Israel and the nations, we have to do some things. The Bible teaches that the end of this age and the glorious inauguration of the age to come is not just something that happens in the sweet by and by because of God's sovereignty. That's true. There is God's sovereignty. But the Bible teaches that we are the players on the stage or on the field, on the playing field of world history. And we who know the Lord are to move history to the climax of the coming of the Lord and the glory of the age to come. How do we do it? Well, this is what Jesus said. Verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to the nations, and then the end will come. Anyone who goes with a sign and says the end of the world is near is not biblical. Because the end of the world is not near. It may be the end of the age, but what comes at the end of the age is the renewal of the world. So don't fear the end of the world. The world is not going to come to an end. But the age is going to come to an end. The age of the ruler being Satan. Jesus said this gospel of the kingdom must be preached in all the world as a witness. And the first thing we have to understand is what is this good news of the kingdom? One of the most shocking things to me is that most of the church in the Western world does not preach the gospel of the kingdom and doesn't even know what it is. Now, that's pretty shocking. Most of the Christians in the Western world preach a gospel that goes something like this. You broke the law. You're going to go to hell. Jesus died for your sins. And if you receive Jesus, you'll go to heaven. My friends, that is not the gospel of the kingdom. That is an anemic perversion. Now, at best... When people say that you need to receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, they're getting closer. But some have preached this in such a way that you can receive Jesus as Savior and go to heaven and still continue in sin. If you turn on Christian radio, if you turn on Christian television, you will rarely ever hear the gospel of the kingdom. If you go to your average church, you will rarely ever hear the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus said that the good news was the kingdom of God is at hand, and at hand was an ancient Jewish euphemism meaning available to you. You can take hold of it. You can enter into it. That the kingdom of God is available to you. And what he was saying, you can enter into a new realm. You can live in and from the kingdom of God and be totally transformed in every dimension of your life. The good news of the kingdom of God is the invitation to enter into and live from the kingdom of God. That's the only good news there is. The way into that kingdom is through the cross. The way into that kingdom is through the forgiveness of sins. The way into that kingdom is through grace alone. But it is an invitation 
to say yes to total transformation. You come to the end of yourself and the life that you were living in the kingdom of darkness. You come to see that it was the kingdom of darkness. And you see and hear what is available to you. And the good news of the kingdom of God is the good news that if you will let Him, the King of the universe can transform everything about your life, but not just you, but corporate life. That means that He can transform not just your inside as an individual and straighten out your thinking and straighten out your feeling, but He can straighten out your marriage. He can straighten out your children. He can straighten out the family. He can straighten out your extended family. He can straighten out your church. He can straighten out your city. He can straighten out your business. He can straighten out everything that touches your life. Jesus is the King. And He invites us to live in and from His kingdom. He invites us to transformed life. And the proof that the kingdom of God has come and is available is signs and wonders. The proof that the kingdom of God is available is that we form a new kind of community, which in the New Testament in English is called the church, in Greek, ecclesia, in Hebrew, the kahila. This new kind of community is a manifestation of reconciliation, of love, of covenant relations. And it becomes the primary first installment of the manifestation of the kingdom that spreads out into every other sphere of life. The gospel of the kingdom, therefore, is an invitation to community under the lordship of Jesus. It's not an individualistic invitation where it's just me, God, and the Bible. It's an invitation to be part of the church. There's no kingdom life without being part of the church. So at the end of Matthew chapter 28, this is the Great Commission. The eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them, and when they saw Him, they worshipped Him. Some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority is given to Me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I commanded you, and surely I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. When you understand what the good news is, it leads to seeking to disciple people in the fullness of walking according to the commandments of Jesus. And according to the statistics of George Barna, the American church is doing a terrible job at this. Discipleship is far from us. Instead of discipleship, we're making it easy for people to just attend and for a brief period of time be made to feel better. Jesus said, all authority is given to me. Why did he say that? Because we would then understand that he had authority to delegate authority to us. And we have authority to disciple the nations, to make disciples of all peoples. And in that role of discipleship, Jesus says that he will be with us always. You cannot yank this verse out and put it on a plaque on your wall and say, Lo, I am with you always. Jesus is not with us always when we are outside of his will. The promise to be with us always is the promise to be with all those who are engaged in the task of disciple making. 
Why do we make disciples? Because we have to live according to the kingdom of God. I said that we move history to their de- to its destiny by preaching the gospel of the kingdom, but also by restoring the church. And I want you to turn with me to just a couple of passages, and I want you to understand that if we want to see Jesus return, we have to hunger and thirst and desire and intercede for the church to become what it is meant to be. For well over 20 years, almost 23 years, I've been involved in efforts for the unity of the church. Because this is what Jesus said in verse 20 of John 17. My prayer is not for them alone. I also pray for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I in you, that they may be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me, may they be brought to complete unity so that the world may believe that you have sent me. If Jesus prayed this, it has to happen. He prayed that the church would be one like he and the Father are one. That is astonishing. That is so outside of the realm of how people are thinking in the American church today. But he said that if we can come into that level of unity, then the world will come to belief. Once again, we have the conversion of the whole world in mind. And then he says it leads to the place where we will be with him where he is. He says that he's given us his glory. Now I want to tell you something astonishing. There is not one city in the world that I know of Perhaps it's true of the underground church, so we can't see it. But there is not one city in the world where the church has come into unity that is anything like what's spoken about here in John 17. Not one! What we have instead created is a model that I call free enterprise ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is the study of the church. And we at least, if we think we attain a high level of ethics, our mutual competition is at least not unethical like in the business world. But Jesus is seeking there to be one church. He is seeking there to be a church that is in unity like He and the Father are one. And upon that church He is going to pour out His glory. Many of us talk about fivefold ministry. And when I come to these meetings of apostles... And they all talk about their apostolic networks and how I have 300 churches in my network and 200 in my network and 500 in my network. I stand up and I say, listen, I appreciate these apostolic streams, but is this what God is really ultimately wanting to build? And some of you have churches in your networks in the same city, and those churches have nothing to do with each other. Jesus taught through Paul that God has given some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to the equipping of the saints until we all come to unity of the faith and that we are in the knowledge of the Son of God and we become mature and attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. 
And brothers and sisters, I am looking for the fullness of the church. I don't know what kind of judgment God is going to pour out. I don't know what kind of power God is going to pour out. I don't know what kind of revival there will be. But something has to change the nature of church so that the church is in houses. So that the church meets in houses of fellowship and discipleship. So that the church is in unity. So the church is filled with glory. And so the church fulfills the prayer of Jesus. And most of the American church doesn't even care about it. You see, I'm anticipating my next point in moving history. But I believe that the glory of the church is to be revealed on earth very fully before we meet the Lord in the air. And I asked a question some time ago. What kind of church must there be in the world to make Israel jealous? It's going to be a church that loves. It's going to be a church that shows mercy. But I'm this really kind of strange Messianic Jew who eats and drinks and sleeps the restoration of the church. That almost seems bizarre. But the church was born out of the Jewish people. So I would say as a representative of the Jewish people, we want our child to stand up and walk rightly. In Revelation chapter 7, after describing the saved remnant of Israel, the description of the glory of the church in the last days is put forth in Revelation 7, verse 9. I looked and before me was a multitude no one could number from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb wearing white robes and they were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And they were worshiping and saying, Amen, praise and wisdom and glory. And one of the elders asked John, Who is this? And he said, You know. And he said, They are those that have come out of great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And maybe it will take some tribulation to get us to this place. They're before the throne of God. Serve Him day and night in His temple, and He who sits in the throne will spread His tent over them. They will not hunger. They will not thirst. The sun will not beat upon them. The Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will lead them to springs of living water. I think this is Mike Bickle's vision for the church. It's something of what he wants to see here in Kansas City. But this chapter is saying that the church will be like this worldwide. I have a problem with the seeker-friendly, user-friendly movement. Not that we shouldn't change our language to be inviting to the, the visitor. Sometimes our language is like code in language and people can't even understand it. Not that we shouldn't make people feel welcome. But those who have gone this route have abandoned the glory and fullness of the church. They do not seek it. They have traded their birthright for a pot of porridge. They are not seeking the glory of God in the midst of the church. And the glory of God in the midst of the church is connected to the quest for unity. I hunger and thirst for the fullness of the church. Because the fullness of the church is the key to the salvation of Israel. And the salvation of Israel is the key to the redemption of the nations of the world. 
So we have to move history to the destiny of the glorious age to come in which we find our fulfillment by preaching the gospel of the kingdom and by seeking the restoration and fullness of the church. And we must never give it up for anything less that may look good in religious sociology. Number three, we move history to her destiny by making Israel jealous. The church is charged with a special calling and priesthood, and that is to see that Israel fulfills her destiny and priesthood. So Paul says in Romans chapter 11, I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry if I may provoke my people to jealousy. Paul points to the ministry. His ministry is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's the signs. It's the wonders. I want to tell you what I think it is. I think the primary thing that we magnify is the presence of the Lord in our midst. The presence of the Lord that Jewish people are supposed to have And when Jewish people see the real presence of the Lord and its manifestation in the midst of the church, it makes them jealous. But they need to see that this is not a matter of the end of their identity and calling, but the beginning of it. For Paul says that if we make Israel jealous, if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So when the church makes Israel jealous in partnership with the Messianic Jewish part of the church, and we are part of the church theologically, then we will see life from the dead. We understand that this making Israel jealous has to do with mercy because at the end of the chapter in verse 31 we read, they've been become disobedient in order that they may receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. So we are to be engaged in mercy toward the Jewish people from a place of the presence and glory of God in our midst. Wow. I'll say that again. That's a big one. We are to engage in works of mercy toward Israel from a place of the presence and glory of God in our midst. That makes Israel jealous. And when Israel is jealous, the world will believe Because Israel will call upon the name of Jesus and say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And when Israel does that, the sky will part. Israel will be delivered from the invading armies. And the manifestation of God's deliverance will be so great that the nations will be en masse converted into the kingdom of God. We will become the bride queen that will rule by his side in the age to come. God has set things up so that the church cannot get into the ultimate destiny of the age to come without Israel. And Israel cannot get into the destiny of the age to come without the church. God has set up another one of those interdependent things for mutual blessing as the condition of entering into the glory of the age to come. Israel needs the church, and the church needs Israel, and we can only go into that age together. It's part of the chosenness upon the two dimensions of the Abrahamic children 
the church, which is the children of Abraham by faith, and the Jewish people who are the Abrahamic children by descent. This is why Paul can cry out about the depths of the, witch, the riches of God. No one could have ever figured this out. No one could have ever written this or imagined it in the human mind. I believe that we are coming to a day of great tribulation. I believe those days of great tribulation, I'm going to preach about this tomorrow morning, the days of great tribulation are the days of the glory of the church. The days of great tribulation are also days of great harvest. But I believe that at the end of that tribulation, the church will have come to a place of fullness. Not only the full number of Gentiles come in, but the kind of unity that Jesus prayed for, the kind of church and glory that Jesus wept for. That there will also be a mighty Messianic Jewish movement in the land of Israel. So that at the time of the final battle, and by the way, you have to understand this, the tribulation takes place because the devil is smoked out. We declare war by coming into what God wants. We come to a place where the devil must reveal himself and fight and engage the battle. And therefore, he seeks to destroy Israel. But ultimately, in that time of duress, when the nations come, the church will have gotten it right in loving Israel and interceding and crying her guts out. And Israel will turn to Jesus and say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the Lord will come and Israel will be delivered. And all at once, after long ages of waiting, we will see the end of this age and the glorious revelation of the fullness of the age to come. And Israel and the nations will become one under the rule of the Messiah. And we will see those nations one with Israel, with Jesus ruling from Jerusalem, with His bride queen who we are at His side. So if you want to enter your eternal destiny, if you have a focus on that destiny, which you should indeed be meditating on so that you can motivate yourself because you're living for and from eternity, then you need to give yourself to the gospel of the kingdom, to the restoration of the church, and to making Israel jealous. Because when the church is restored and the kingdom is preached and Israel is made jealous, we will see the fulfillment of all of our hopes and dreams. This is a vast message. This is a drama beyond the Lord of the Rings. Did you like the Lord of the Rings? This is bigger. All the devils in hell are like the orcs and they lose. I want to tell you something about Tolkien. He wrote a little essay years ago. It's hard to find. It's called On Fairy Stories. And Tolkien said that every fairy story, every great story, partakes of the pattern that's in the Bible. He said it partakes of the pattern of creation where things are good, like in the Garden of Evil. Then there's a fall and a tremendous challenge and battle of evil. And then there's an ultimate redemption that leads to a restoration of blessing. Every great story is like that. That's why we know that every great story has to have a happy ending. 
I'm too old to want to go to those existentialist, depressing movies that were being made in the 60s. I don't want any of those movies anymore. They may be artsy. I want movies with happy endings. You see, when you live that kind of a movie, you're participating in something of the biblical pattern. And God must be the greatest dramatist. He must be the greatest creative thinker of all because He's writing a novel that is actually filled out in detail by the choices of human beings that is so complex, that is so vast, that we will be studying the creative novel that is also reality of God's writing throughout eternity. Israel, the nations, angels, demons, world redemption, last battle, age to come, and the restoration of paradise where God will wipe away every tear. My brothers and sisters, you who are part of this movement for the restoration of the church and Israel, tikkun ha'olam, the restoration of the world, have joined in this drama. Life is no longer boring, but you are the ones that are carrying the weight and the glory of being participants in the redemption of the whole world. Let's pray. Father, the themes of the Bible that you have given us are so grand, and yet we can only have glimpses of the glory that you anticipate to bring upon this earth. Glory that is on the other side of tribulation, but glory that we sometimes participate in, in small ways on this side of eternity. Father, we look forward to our eternal destiny. We look forward to living forever in that kingdom and reading the story of your plan over and over and developing new stories in ages where there are no tears and where there is no death and where there is no tragedy. We pray that every person here would live for their eternal destiny. In the name of Jesus, may we give our whole heart, body, soul, mind, emotions, everything we have, all our wealth, all our treasures, all our relationships, totally to the destiny of eternity. In the name of Yeshua, Amen. Motivate yourselves by comprehending your eternal destiny in an order of mutual blessing and give yourselves to move history to that destiny. You know, you spoke powerful things, but you know what I'm struck with? I just love this man. I was sitting here, I said, I love this man. I mean, I know he's speaking profound truths, but I just love this man. He has been fighting. I know Patty says, I, I, I love him. That's what Patty's saying. This man has been fighting.